0: a witch hunt was launched against peace activists and leftists in the United States, people who opposed the growing danger of war with the USSR, the Soviet Union. Today, as the danger of military confrontation with China grows, as the United States government and the Pentagon have adopted major power conflict with China as a principal military and foreign policy priority, there is a new witch hunt, against peace activists and against the left and people are fighting back. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Manolo de los Santos. He's the co-executive director of the People's Forum in New York City and also with Vijay Prashad, executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books, a prolific author most recently publishing a new book with noam chomsky called the withdrawal iraq libya afghanistan and the fragility of u.s power manolo Vijay, welcome back
1: thanks Thanks. for having us
0: well we're at um sort of a an important moment a fork in the road perhaps uh as i mentioned in the introduction people are organizing a mass movement it's taking on the dimensions of a mass movement against the new cold war and against the new mccarthyism uh, choreographed with the new cold war i want to read from uh, uh something that the people's forum and other organizations put out manolo and then get you to comment this was a sign-on letter it says we stand against the rise of new of the new mccarthyism that is targeting peace activists critics of u.s foreign policy and chinese americans despite increased intimidation We remain steadfast in our mission to foster peace and international solidarity, countering the narrative of militarism, hostility, and fear. And then this statement goes on to identify major media outlets, including the New York Times, as being the initiators, uh, the promoters, the purveyors of the new McCarthyism. Again, as we'll talk about in this show, that's not a new role for the New York Times. But, Manola, let's start. What is the sign-on letter? Uh, what's the level of support? What's your plan?
1: Well, our plan has been to not stay quiet. We see this as a pivotal moment when liberal media, but also conservative media, from the New York Times to Fox News, are essentially trying to trigger a new witch hunt against anyone who disagrees with their status quo politics, anyone who opposes a warmongering foreign policy by the United States government. And the incredible thing is that despite their desire to intimidate us, their their desire to even isolate us from other sectors of movements in the United States, it has produced quite the opposite. Thousands of individuals inside the United States and around the world have expressed our solidarity, have signed our statement, and more importantly, hundreds of organizations and movements and local groups and collectives have also joined the statement. Kind of sending a very resounding message that we won't accept this new wave of McCarthyism. We won't accept this witch hunt. We won't accept anyone trying to tell us that to be dissenting, to be in opposition, is to be un-American. In their language,
0: VJ, the New York Times had a major attack piece against TriContinental Research, Code Pink, the People's Forum. Uh, I guess according to the New York Times, anybody who says that they're for peace with China or a different orientation of U.S. policy, or they oppose militarism, they oppose the United States going to war after war after war, as you have done, that you're echoing and repeating Chinese propaganda points. That means you must be a sort of an agent of of China. I mean, this is the same sort of absurd, bizarre, ridiculous, and racist uh, coverage that the New York Times visited upon W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, uh, Jeff Sessions, who was attorney general, used to say the same thing about Martin Luther King
2: Jr. He was un-American. Anyway, it's the same playbook. Well, um, Brian, that's great company. So uh, I would prefer to be in the company of Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Martin Luther King um, than to be in the company the executive suites of the new york times so certainly uh, thanks for making that list available to me and making me feel good at the beginning of your show um but i'm you know we're also in other company um fascinatingly in july u.s treasury secretary janet yellen went to china where she talked with the chinese about common points of agreement where she made a statement saying that the u.s china relationship is on shorter footing. That's a direct quote from Janet Yellen, you know, who's in Biden's cabinet, talking about the need to dial back on the rhetoric and to increase areas where China, United States, can collaborate. Well, after Janet Yellen left China, uh, who comes to China? Interesting. At the age of a hundred, uh, Henry Kissinger shows up in Beijing. Henry Kissinger meets Xi Jinping. Henry Kissinger has a conversation saying, hey, listen, we shouldn't be ramping up uh, this you know, con- conflict between China and United States. We need to dial it down. I mean, we are not saying anything very different than that. We are saying, we don't believe that confrontation um, imposed by the United States on countries like China, but also other countries, South Africa, Brazil, and so on. This confrontation is not good for the planet. We have some serious issues to deal with: climate catastrophe, you know, the the jobs crisis around the world, um, the problem of militarism, the problem of of increased arms sales around the world. These are real issues, and we must deal with these issues in a collaborative way. We are saying that we've already said that, you know, in in our institute, TriContinental, um, you know, we're saying that. In fact, interestingly, alongside. Janet Yellen. So I don't see why the New York Times at this point when the US government says that it's time to dial back the tensions with China. At this point, why does the New York Times come in and start a kind of new McCarthyite campaign against those who are trying to bring peace uh, between the major powers in the world? Are papers like that carrying a water for the arms industry? Are they carrying water for um, the right wing that really wants a war? I don't know. But I am perplexed that at a time when it appears that the major countries are trying to dial back the tension, the New York Times decides to come in alongside other lesser periodicals to ramp up uh, the tension to create fear where there shouldn't be fear.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We're looking at some of the footage from the the nineteen forties and the nineteen fifties, the the extreme hysteria that was ever present in the United States. The first time I got a job, uh, when I was well, it's not my first job, but my first job when I was in my twenties was at a at a clothing factory in Manolo, and I had to sign a pledge then that said I'm not a communist. Uh, which I signed, even though that may not have been completely accurate. And, uh, you know, that was what the situation was. Even in 1972, people were having to still pledge that they weren't communists in order to get a job. In 1949, there was the Smith Trial Act. Uh, Benjamin Davis here in New York City, the first black city councilman, was put on trial for sedition And sent to prison along with 11 other members of the Communist Party. And then there were follow-up trials. And more than 100 officials in the Communist Party were sent to prison. And they were sent to prison not for what they did, but for what they believed. Because they believed in the Communist Manifesto and in socialism, that was what was made illegal. So dissent was criminalized. Protest was criminalized. Opposition to the Korean War was criminalized. And what people were thinking was criminalized. And that's, you know, we, we were taught in later in the 1980s, the witch hunt was bad. But Manolo, the witch hunt is back. The demonization, the same tactics, they're back. I mean, and they're back for
1: similar reasons like for the why they originated in the first place. I mean... When the witch hunt started in the late 40s, in the 1950s, and they attacked people like Paul Robes and like Du Bois, also people like Claudia Jones, who was eventually deported from the United States for her beliefs and her work in the United States, organizing as a communist. It was There was a clear attempt to not just crush these particular figures and their importance to the movements as a whole, but they were trying to crush the movements, in fact. They were trying to crush workers' movements in the United States. They were trying to crush the civil rights movement in the United States. They were trying to crush all those who had, after the World War, Second World War, had understood that the war against fascism didn't end in Europe, but that they actually had to fight for greater democracy, for greater rights inside the United States. And I think today, you know, we're nowhere even near the strength or the possibilities of the movements of the past, but clearly the fact that there are millions of young people who in 2020 rose up In rebellion against the racist structures of the United States who rose up against white supremacy, who today are actively questioning why this democracy exists but only in the benefit of a few. Why do we continue to live in a society that sanctions police brutality? Why do we continue to live in a society that takes away abortion rights from more than half of our population? Why do we continue to live in a society where poverty is the norm And there always seems to be lacking for the majority of us. I think this attempt by the New York Times and other media outlets, but that seems to find an echo in the voices of the far right in the United States, ultimately wants to crush the movements of young people today. They want to crush the abolitionists. They want to crush the anti-war movement. They want to crush the feminist movement. They want to crush all of us young people who actually, despite having not lived through the earlier periods of McCarthyism, are saying... Socialism actually does seem attractive to us. Socialism does seem to have the answers that we want for our society. And we have a clear message. And I think that's importance of us speaking out is that unlike in the past, we won't be silenced. We refuse to be silenced and we refuse to leave. There's nowhere else for us to go. Our fight is here in the United States, in the belly of the beast, to say not just to the far right, but to the rest of society that we're gonna continue fighting for the world that we want.
0: I want to talk, VJ, with you and Manolo about the New York Times and its role, because a lot of people think of the New York Times as like the newspaper of record, the most you know esteemed newspaper in the country. The right wing calls the New York Times liberal or left, which I kind of find funny at this point, uh, because in the United States, the center-right is called the left, and then. There is the far right, and then there's the far, far right. And uh, as our friend Randy Credico said, there's a fine line between the right, the far right, and the Third Reich. And uh, and I think the New York Times is, you know, we have to think of it that way. But I want to go to some, we have some clippings of New York Times articles, actually. Uh, when you look at their record, especially with the Iraq War, um I mean, they were selling the war, and this is a point that you've been making. Right now, they're selling hostility towards China. They're advocating for that, and they're demonizing people who are advocating for a different policy. Uh, way back when, in ancient history, like 24 years ago, uh, when peace activists could still get on the cable network news, uh, we had uh, a number of us who were you know, protesting against the looming war in Iraq. We were talking against the war in Iraq. And so I was on Fox News regularly, MSNBC, CNN, a little less regularly. But my last time I was on MSNBC, the guy who I was debating said, you're echoing Saddam Hussein's talking points because I was saying there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I have been following Iraq very carefully. I'd been to Iraq many times. I said, there are no weapons of mass destruction. There were 13,000 weapons inspections over uh, an 11-year period. There are no weapons of mass destruction. And And then he ends, and this is how the show ended, and it was the last time I was brought on to MSNBC. He said, you're an Iraqi agent. And that's where it was going in the months leading up to the Iraq war. Suddenly, the mass media closed off debate, including the New York Times, Judith Miller, the whole rest of them, they started selling the war. And that's what's happening now. And that's why the, quote, new McCarthyism, where if you talk against the war, you're an agent of China. Like we were agents of Saddam because we didn't want war with Iraq.
2: it's really interesting that you said, uh, put it that way. Let's go back briefly to the question of Iraq. Um, you know, I was also saying that there are no weapons of mass destruction. Now, on what basis was I saying that? Was I talking to the Iraqi government and getting their point of view and just amplifying it? That's the implication of you're an Iraqi agent. No, not at all. I was reading United Nations materials. I was reading and watching the statements of Hans Blix who was the leading um, weapons inspector in Iraq at the time. Hans Blix was saying, look, we've been to all the sites. UN um, documents were showing that they couldn't find anything, maybe some chemicals here and there, which were of all kinds of uses, maybe to make fertilizer. Maybe these were indeed weapons, but there was no evidence of mass weapons of mass destruction production. And we were speaking there for on the basis of the material available, um, you know, from the United Nations, not from the Iraqis. But because we were not in the echo chamber of the United States government at the time, Now, imagine, uh, talk about the echo chamber, when Mr. Colin Powell, at the time Secretary of State, goes into the uh, Security Council meeting, briefed by his deputies, told to say that um, there is, in fact, evidence that, you know, there's a, Um, uh, an informant, Curveball, who had given them the information. And later, years later, Colin Powell was upset, said I was lied to. I wasn't told that the person from whom information came had been tortured in an Egyptian prison and so on. Why am I saying all this? Because, I mean, who's an agent of what? I mean, I'm an agent of the truth. I tried to seek the truth. I tried to build my understanding of the truth from the facts not from what the cia whispers in my ear or any intelligence agency whispers in my ear i mean what we're trying to say now is that this conflict with china which starts as a trade dispute has accelerated beyond the imagination i think of even barack obama who was one of the initiators of this particular wave of anti-china sentiment you will remember his pivot to asia the attempt to box in the Chinese to prevent Chinese developments in technology, in in science, which includes high-speed rail, it includes green technology, includes robotics, telecommunications, and so on. Initially, this was a trade dispute. It was about hemming in China, not allowing China to have what the United States considered trade advantages against the major tech companies of the United States. I'm not sure these trade advantages were, you know, uh, were produced by China in any other way than by basic commerce. I mean, they were out uh, bargaining um, Western telecommunications companies in many parts of the world. But what begins as a trade dispute escalates rapidly into a dispute around security, war, Taiwan, red lines, Xinjiang, and so on. Very fast escalation into something like a hot war between two major powers. I am saying I oppose that war. Now, in saying you are opposed that war based both on the facts of what the dispute started in and based on the fact that a war between the United States and China would be catastrophic for the planet, which is already experiencing its own catastrophes. China is not Iraq. China is a country of 1.5 billion people um, with a ability to defend itself with nuclear weapons. China is not Iraq. If the Iraq war had an element of catastrophe, this is at a much greater scale, much greater quality of destruction. In saying that we oppose the war, we are being called agents of China for no reason. One of the um, things that they keep saying is that we are in contact with people in China. Yes i run a research institute an international research institute i am in contact with scholars research institutes around the world there is no um, you know legal basis to say you shouldn't talk to people in another country you know during the most dangerous point of the cold war scholars in the united states were in direct contact with scholars in the ussr that's a productive thing Human beings need to be in touch with each other. We need to encourage more contact, not less, not demonize contact. What the New York Times is doing and what I find particularly offensive is not only, you know, lighting the candle under the war makers, but it's also sending a message out there that contact with Chinese people is, is somehow dangerous. Don't be in touch with Chinese people. That is going to intensify anti-Chinese sentiment. And you know that all evidence already suggests that this kind of attitude creates attacks against Chinese Americans, Chinese people in parts of the West, a very dangerous situation. And I'm ashamed of the New York Times for going in that direction.
0: I want to also mention the, you know, I would say the profoundly racist character of this demonization campaign, Manolo, I mean, the New York Times, they're looking for people all over the world who they say are echoing and repeating. These are very specific kinds of words, Chinese talking points. Like, for instance, uh, Africans and African countries might get a better deal doing business with China than they would from the the countries that colonized Africa. Now, the better deal might not simply be because one – Entity, China didn't colonize Africa and the other countries did, it may be because it's a better deal. It may be because it's not trying to get maximum profits for uh, Chinese corporations, that China's agenda may be access to resources, uh, have sustainable relationships with countries that have natural resources. In other words, not getting top dollar for every transaction. So for the country for a country in Africa or countries in Africa or companies in Africa, they might think, "Yeah, I'll do business with China instead of the United States or I'll do business with both." And the and now the New York Times is saying if Africans say they don't have a colonized relationship with Africa or that the deals they get might be better deals, then they are echoing and repeating Chinese talking points as if Africans could not make up their own minds about what's a good deal and what's not a good deal. I mean, it's this kind of profound racism that envelops the entire demonization campaign. So as VJ put it, Asian Americans right now are getting beaten up on the streets. Chinese researchers are being investigated, like in World War II when the Japanese Population was sent to concentration camps. If you're Asian or Chinese, you're suspect. And then Africans, if they say, look, we want a better deal for Africa, and that might be with China in some instances, they too are just dupes of China. It's racism. I mean,
1: this racism that is so profound and I would say systemic to North American culture, politics, to its media, including the New York Times over over the years, when it makes these claims for example i would often i often think why is it that africans can't make decisions for themselves why is it that africans and i would say not just africans but latin americans or anyone can't actually determine what the best deal is regardless of whether china's deals are the best or not i actually think that the peoples of the third world have enough experience have a profound experience of actually dealing and trading with the us to know that ultimately, in the past centuries, what has trade with the U.S. actually left us? It's left us in a permanent debt crisis where our countries are not able to even develop on their own terms, are in fact forced to continue to not even pay the debt, but to continue to force to be paid the interest of their debts over long periods of time, where our countries are forced to even cut their own budgets in order to pay for the interest of debt. All we know about trade with the U.S and the major European powers is the continued presence of their military bases on our territories around the Third World. So the fact that after all of this experience, the peoples of the Third World can't have the capacity to make a decision on their, on their own is ludicrous. And I think, again, if this is informed by the per- persistent racism of media platforms like the New York Times and many others. Those who consider themselves liberal, but liberal only to the point of, of literally not seeing the realities in front of them. And I think this New York Times article in particular, but many others have precisely lacked facts. They have precisely lacked a concrete understanding of the reality in which the rest of the world lives in. I would say, and I would go further to add that, the positions that we hold that are for peace, that are for engagement with China, that are for engagement with other countries around the world, that are opposed to sanctions, are the opinions of millions of people around the world. If you were to go to South Africa, if you were to go to Nigeria, some of the most populous countries on the African continent, you ask everyday people on the street, what is their opinion of China? Most people would have a favorable opinion. And not only that, people would be in a majority opposed to US foreign policy, not just against China, but against the rest of the world. I think that is remarkable. That's why. As much as the New York Times wants to, you know, create factless accusations and allegations that are only based on innuendo, I feel comforted in the fact that I am in a generation and a moment in history where the majority of humanity is standing on the right side. Where the majority of humanity actually believes that war can't be the path or the solution to our problems. And that it's better to live in a world where there are powers like China and Russia that actually offer an alternative, a possibility of being able to choose rather the hegemonic power of the United States that never allows us to think, doesn't think that we're capable, thinks that we're actually idiotic and can't make decisions for ourselves.
0: Yeah, VJ. Uh, you know, we were running those, those, those headlines from the New York Times. I, I wouldn't mind putting them back up on the screen here. They, they're like, to stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. Bomb Syria, even if it's illegal. Bomb North Korea before it's too late. From Iraq, lessons for the next war. The world all aboard America's war train is leaving the station. Bombing Iraq isn't enough. How to choke Iraq. The case against Iraq. Radioactive, radioactive materials found at a test site near Baghdad. That was another Judith Miller story right before the, the, the invasion, the illegal invasion in, in 2003. I mean, when you look at those headlines, yeah, a lot of them are opinion pieces, but those are the, the New York Times picks the headlines. Just think of China's Daily had articles that said, to stop uh, somebody's bomb, let's bomb them. Bomb Syria, even if it's illegal. Bomb North Korea before it's too late. If China talked the way the New York Times talked, if Russia media talked this way, we would consider that to be clear evidence that these states are addicted to war, addicted to militarism, You know, infected with hubris and arrogance and racism. And yet in America, it's normal. This is the thing that Americans, like Americans are so used to being propagandized and so used to the demonization. And after the demonization, like after the Iraq War, everybody said to each other, let's not get, let's not let that happen again. Let's not, you know, have the US media, like the New York Times, demonize a target so much so that the U.S. can carry out an illegal act of aggression that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Let's not have that happen again. And then the next time, when it's Qaddafi in Libya or Assad in Syria, or now Xi Jinping in China, like everybody forgets about the demonization from the last time, because the power of the U.S. media is so great that the demonization seems normal and as as uh, as as nazi propagandists put it if you t- if you tell a big lie enough times over and over and over again it's accepted because how could it be repeated over and over and over again if indeed it was a lie this is actually classic you know neo-fascistic propaganda infecting american society and thus you know sort of propagandizing the american people in in a country that says
2: we believe in free speech rights I mean, you know, what's interesting, Brian, is it's so cliched. Um, You first pick a country and say that this country is the enemy for a host of reasons that are often not declared publicly. You know, they are not um, going along with our our oil policy or they're not um, allowing us to dominate the tech sector or for whatever reason underlies the dispute. Forget that. Take a country, start demonizing it. Say that the leader is a monster. Gaddafi is a monster, Assad is a monster, Xi Jinping is a monster. Then put out there this slogan, Assad must go, Gaddafi must go, Saddam must go, uh, Xi Jinping must go, and so on. Um, once you've done that, you've basically brought public opinion through the mighty world, it uh, they used to say, the great music machine, of the U.S. media, you repeat this slogan, X must go, Y must go, and so on. And then that weaponizes um, the discourse into war. Exactly. Happens all the time. Very interestingly, there's another cliche, uh, Brian, that I wanted to put on the table. And that's the cliche about um, China. Uh, let's go back to why the term neo-McCarthyism or the new mccarthyism is appropriate now. There are punctual moments in U.S. Chinese history where the U.S. political class has turned on China um, because China has done something that it should not have done. It has in some way defied the United States allowance to countries in the third world. There are punctual moments when the U.S. turns against China and then um, some individuals are picked out. As, you know, people who have either gone over to the Chinese side or betrayed the United States vis-a-vis a conflict with China. Let me just pick a couple of prior instances. In the 1950s, after the People's Republic of China was established in 1949, 1950s, there was a big discussion in the United States, which could be summarized around three words. Who lost China? Big debate. There was a very, you know, decent liberal man who worked for the US government called John Service. His name is now largely forgotten. Mr. Service became the character that they all latched upon and said, John Service lost China. Mr. Service, quite an honorable man served his country with some dignity. I don't know much about his personal life. I, I just. You know, I read his book, which is about being honorable servant of the United States. Mr. Service was then pilloried as a kind of agent of China, somebody who had transport espionage and so on, just because Service said toward the latter part of the 1940s that, look, the Venice are the only game in town who are not corrupt and they are going to win. And therefore, the United States must start a channel of discussion with them. Service was the poster boy of who lost China. And part of McCarthyism in the 1950s wasn't just about Russia. It wasn't focused only on Russia. It was also this question, who lost China? After the um, Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, there was a period when it looked like both Russia and China had become pretty pliant. You know, Boris Yeltsin essentially was a, effectively an agent of the United States government, if you don't mind me using that kind of language. Um, He was basically operating as Clinton's man in Moscow. In China as well, there was a kind of quiet that settled in. China had entered into a second phase of reform after 1989. The reform starts in 1978. Um, In the early 1990s, China was pretty quiet, trying to see what's going on in the world stage. By the late 1990s, China began to exert itself a little bit. You'll remember that there was a debate about China's position vis-a-vis the NATO war on Yugoslavia. And then, as you remember, um, NATO airships bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. But around the same time, in the U.S. Congress, Congressman Christopher Cox Opened up a big debate inside Congress, saying, you know, essentially, who is an agent of China in the United States? And he opened hearings in the U.S. Congress, pilloried a lot of people. Why? Because they had some sentimentality towards China, or they felt that a conflict between the United States and China was just not a good idea. In the middle of this, a scientist in New Mexico by the name of Wenho Lee was fingered by the government. And he was arrested, held in solitary confinement. They made outlandish accusations against Mr. Wenho Lee. After Wenho Lee was eventually released, it was President Bill Clinton who apologized for the treatment um, meted out to Wen Ho Lee. But during the attack at Wenho Lee, Brian, nobody said a word. I mean, they all ganged up against this gentleman who had, as he wrote in his country, his book, his book was called Something Like Myself versus My Country. Uh, It's a very sad book. It's a lot like John Service's book, a book that says, you know, what did I do? Why did you pick on me? So I would like to just say, just as there are the cliches of the New York Times and others taking the country to war, taking the United States to war, there are also the cliches of targeting people within and outside the United States and calling them agents of China, in particular, in this instance, Mr. Service. Mr. Wenholi, I want to recognize them because, in a sense, they are ancestors of those who are getting picked on today. This is not new. This has a history. And cliches may bore people because they say, well, we've seen this before, but each cliche is dangerous. Don't forget, Wenholi spent a long time in solitary confinement in prison. If people don't wake up to the reality of these cliches, the dangers of these cliches, History will indeed repeat itself. The only way to prevent history from repeating itself is if people stand up and prevent that from happening. History is not an agent. People are the agents, and they must act to prevent these things from going on and on in a punctual, cyclical fashion.
0: I'm so glad you raised his case. Right now, VJ and Manolo, there are investigations, FBI investigations against Chinese nationals researchers, scientists, grad students in every state of the country, all 50 states. And the Chinese American community knows this. I mean, everybody knows it. And uh, what, what happens when there's a witch hunt is if you don't denounce the witch, or especially if you're friends with the witch, or if you get up and say, hey, wait a second, I don't think the witch is a witch. That might be an indication that you're a witch. Or you're the friend of witches and so you become tired and so the tendency especially I, i'd say among some parts of the population yes i'm speaking to you middle-class liberals run for cover run for cover instead of standing up because you all know exactly what this means when you when you target a people, when you create a witch hunt and a hysteria, not only are Asian and Chinese people subjected to violence and false investigations, but people shun other people. There's the shunning that takes place. This is not this is not, you know, comporting with what our notions of democracy are. If you say everybody to everybody, yeah, you have the right to to speak out. You have the right to say, I disagree with the United States government. I think there should be peace with China. And by the way, yes, I do think China's made some significant uh, scientific, technological, and environmental advances. If you're afraid to say those things because you're going to be told or labeled that you're echoing and repeating Chinese propaganda points, if you self-censor you are the, you become the enemy of, of democracy too. The only way to maintain free speech is to fight for free speech. Everybody's, we tell our kids, oh, this is a cherished right. This is something that makes America exceptional. Well, American free speech rights have been under attack from the get go. I mean, tell Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks about free speech rights. They had to fight for it. And, and, and today we, we honor Dr. Martin Luther King. We take, that day, his birthday off, we honor him. Well, during the Montgomery bus boycott, his house was blown up twice, you know. And and that's that's what what's the challenge for us, Manolo, on on the progressive forces, including everyone who might be momentarily intimidated, is get over being intimidated, stand together, uh, fight together, defend free speech rights. Because if we don't defend them, they're going to be eviscerated.
1: I mean, silence at this point only paves the way for these racist and fascist forces to completely take control of the society we live in. So that is unacceptable. And we can't wait to the moment when you're standing alone to say something. Now that we actually have force, that we actually have comrades, that we have people across the country, and I would say across the world who are in agreement with our ideas, we have to stand up and stand together. Now, having said that, I actually think That things, you know, as much as we're facing this new McCarthyism, as much as we're facing this new witch hunt, we are in a stronger position than let's say our comrades were in the 1950s or 40s. Why? Because there are millions of us. There are millions of young people who actually think that the world has to be changed. There are millions of young people who believe that socialism is actually a cool and attractive idea. And even more than that, we are young people who are organized in movements in ways that we haven't seen in years before. It was only a few years ago that we were able to shed the wave of anti-communism that had initiated with the witch hunts of the 1950s. It's only a few years ago that we could begin even talking about socialism again in such an open way. I refuse to shut that door again. I refuse to go back into history. I refuse to go back to a moment when segregation and racism and police brutality and white supremacy are acceptable. I refuse to go back to a moment when LGBTQ people and women are forced to sit back. I refuse to go back into the silence of anti-communism and the Red Scare. Now is a time again to stand together, to be loud, to be unafraid, knowing that we are not a few, that these are not minority ideas, but that in fact, these are the ideas and actually the strengths and the movements of millions of people around the world who will actually transform the world we live in
0: i'm so glad you mentioned the fact that the taboo on socialism started to lift not so long ago in the united states and soon as it lifted tens of millions of young people said oh yeah that's that makes sense socialism sounds good uh, of course socialists are not allowed normally to participate in debates uh, but it, VJ, I wanna as we're starting to move towards the end here, I wanted to remind our audience about what actually did happen. I, I was just thinking about this based on Manolo's comments. In in 2015, Bernie Sanders, a very unlikely curmudgeonly older white man in the U.S. Senate, uh said he was gonna run against Hillary Clinton. And and the first debate, the very first debate on CNN, Democratic Party debate, a rare moment where because he's a democratic socialist you know, where there's different trends in socialism. But he says, I'm a democratic socialist, meaning meaning basically I'm not a communist. Right. So Bernie gets up and he's running. And Anderson Cooper on national TV, first debate and first question to Bernie is Bernie Sanders, you're a socialist how could you ever be president of the United States? And Bernie Sanders says, Well the reason we're gonna win, Anderson, is and then he talks about affordable housing and health care and you know, et cetera, et cetera, free education, getting rid of student debt. He said that's why we're gonna win And Anderson Cooper thought he was giving the knockout blow with this anti-socialist, anti-communist opening question. And in the next three hours of that debate, this is 2015, people can check it for themselves, $3 million in small donations came into Bernie Sanders' campaign. And suddenly, Bernie Sanders was a thing. And that's when it became okay, in a way, to start to talk about socialism. And tens of millions of people literally came out uh, supporting this idea so this is I think in a way one of the reasons the the ruling establishment is so afraid of having a real free speech is that the ideas of progressivism, anti-war anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism and yes socialism make so much sense and are so popular that it will take off it will become a mass movement so they're using this club, To sort of, you know, deprive people of the, of an authentic debate where socialist ideas and the socialist program can compete against the capitalist imperialist notions. Anyway, Vijay, go ahead.
2: Well, I exactly agree with you. Um, I would like the New York Times to open its opinion page to people like us so we can have a debate and a discussion uh, with the readership and with, um, with the editorial theme about what kinds of ideas we have. Rather than pillory us, why don't they discuss and debate us? Um, You know, when I was a young person, we used to laugh and in the middle of our cliched debates. We would say, my opponent uses the lamppost not for illumination, but for support. And in a way, I would say that that's what the New York Times is like. It's a place where a drunk leans against it for support and doesn't use the like to read by. Let's have a debate. You know, I, I send out from TriContinental a newsletter every week. The newsletter reaches over a million readers. On the 11th of August, 2022, um, exactly a year ago, uh, the newsletter had a headline, and the headline was quite simple. The headline was, "Can we have an adult conversation about China?" And I proceeded to talk about what an adult conversation about China would look like. Um, Let me take this opportunity, Brian, to ask the editors of the New York Times if we can have an adult conversation about China. I'm willing to have a conversation in their opinion pages. I'm willing for them to ask me a set of questions uh, about what I believe regarding China and U.S. relations, as long as it's a discussion about what I think about China. If they cast aspersions at my character or if they ask questions like that, They've walked away, in a way, from the real conversation. Let's talk about the role of China today. Let's talk about why people in the Global South don't share the opinions of the New York Times regarding China or Chinese policy. Look, nobody's saying China is utopia and nothing is wrong with it. These are people trying to build a society, trying to live in the world. Obviously, there are a lot of problems with China, but when do those problems rise to the level of alarm you know there are problems in the united states there are more people per capita incarcerated in the united states than anywhere else in the world any u.s city has lots of homeless people the disregard for poorer people in the united states is cavalier is that genocidal you know do we use terms like genocide to discuss that no i would like to have an adult conversation about the United States. I don't want to throw around you know, juvenile uh, statements to try to pillory the US. Let's have a real conversation. Is there the possibility to, to change the balance of forces so that poverty and homelessness isn't a normal thing in the United States? Let's have that discussion. So again, I'm open to having a real conversation, but these people are not interested in a conversation with us. I fear that we live on two planets. They would like us to disappear. And in a sense, that's a kind of ideological disregard that they have for people who come from the kind of of premises that, that I come from, you come from and others. There's an ideological disregard and that's too bad. It actually hurts the culture. US culture is damaged by this kind of narrowness. Cultures are made vibrant and enriched when people have the guts to have really difficult conversations about difficult issues in the world. When you try to shut down the conversation by pillaring people, you're damaging your own culture.
0: Manolo, uh, we saw some footage during the course of our discussion today of Bill Gates. He's meeting with Xi Jinping, and it's considered kind of okay because, Xi Jinping, because Bill Gates is not part of the anti-war movement. He's not part of the movement against colonialism. He's part of the, you know, standard big capitalist class. And so it's kind of okay for him to talk to China. But if leftists or anti imperialists or anti war people, peace activists talk to China, or even say, like Bill Gates does, that there should be better relations, not worse relations between US and China, then these forces get targeted, demonized. You are a principal organizer of the campaign. That's called McCarthyism is back together. We can stop it. That's where we started this interview. This is where I want to end it. I want to ask you to tell the audience, if you agree with what we're saying here, if you think the New York times and the other vehicles of mainstream corporate owned media, whipping up a hysteria against China is a is not a good idea. Uh, If you think a new witch hunt against the left is a bad idea, you know, join us or join this campaign. How do they do it? I'm going to give you the final word.
1: Thank you, Brian, for inviting me to give the final word. I mean, ultimately, we are not white philanthropists trying to perpetuate the horrible system of capitalism and its violence and terror against our people all over the world and including inside the United States. We are, in fact young people, organizers, leaders of different movements, not just in the People's Forum, but across the United States who clearly understand that they are trying to repeat history, but we won't allow them. We are standing stall, we're standing strong, we're standing united with brothers and sisters and people, even across the different lines of the left in the United States. We're even bringing people who are not on the left, but who understand that free speech and democratic rights must be defended. But I know there are many more people out there. So we're looking for y'all. We're looking to come together with as many different people in the United States who understand that we can actually make a difference and actually send this witch hunt back into history. Not just because we want to defend ourselves, but because we actively want a better society. And there's nothing more patriotic there's nothing more American than following the traditions of Martin Luther King of following the traditions of people like Paul Robeson and Du Bois who actually defined the real character of the people of this
0: country. And if they want to, if people want to go and sign up, become part of the campaign, where do they go? We ask them to
1: look at the People's Forum website, but you can also look at the website for the TriContinental Institute also Code Pink and the Answer Coalition, on any of our websites, you can look for the sign-on statement. And it's not just a sign-on statement. Feel free to share on social media. Feel free to raise our, your voice and be in touch with us about other steps in the upcoming campaign.
0: Manolo, VJ, thank you so much for joining the Socialist Program. Thank you,
1: Brian. Great being on the show.